All right, 2 Kings chapter 5 is where we're going to be. 27 verses. So follow along in your own Bible if you got that. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen for you. Follow along in this lengthy passage about the story of Naaman. Naaman, he was commander of the army of Syria, of the king of Syria, was a great man and with his master in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. Did you catch that? By God's hand. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And so he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver and 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, Know that I've sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel." So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elijah's house. And Elijah sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan River, Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually just said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and he stood before him and he said, Behold, I know that there is no, there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused." Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant, though. When my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he said to him, Go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elijah, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman, and when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me to say, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. 
And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags and two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants, and they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house, and he sent the men away, and they departed. He went in and stood before his master, and Elijah said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, Did not your heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. And so he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. All right, let's walk back through the story to make sure we understand it. I read through that quickly, catch a few things. So Naaman is a man of great power and authority. He's essentially the prime minister of Syria. Um, he is rich, and he's powerful, and he's successful. And as I stopped, as I was reading through it, did you catch verse 1? Because it's important. It says, because by him the Lord had given Syria victory. In other words, the earth is the Lord's, and he provides, and he gives and takes away as he desires, even from his own people. And he gives victories even to the peoples of the nations. He is not just in charge of Israel. He is sovereign over all peoples. God is not a God of an Israelite ghetto. He is no provincial king, but the Lord determines whether Syria as well has military victories. We continue on. Now, the story moves on quickly from verse 1. It doesn't hammer away at the sovereignty of God, but moves into the story about Naaman, because Naaman has a significant problem in the midst of all this success and power. And that is that he has leprosy. Leprosy is the scourge of the ancient East. Uh, it began with a white patch of skin, like a rash, and that could break out and spread all over your body. In time, your nerve endings begin to deaden, and your bodily extremities begin to fall off, and your hair would fall out, and boils would break out all over your body, and you essentially become a rather grotesque figure. It's a rough way to go. All right, so you do not want to have. Uh, leprosy. It's essentially you become a cast or character from The Walking Dead. That's the kind of vision you could have about what a leper eventually looks like. Now, Naaman could have this awful form of leprosy or some other more minor form of leprosy, but he has this particularly difficult disease, and clearly it distresses him and his king and his family. Well, in the midst of having this disease, a little servant girl who had been taken to Syria by raiding parties from Israel. In other words, uh, this name is the, the general. He probably didn't participate in these raiding parties, but part of the ongoing war between Syria and Israel, raiding parties would run into, into Israel. They would kidnap some family members, perhaps. They would steal crops or, or goods and then go back to Syria, sell those people into slavery into Syria, and thus enhance the wealth and the well being of Syria. And that is most likely what happened to this little girl. She is part of one of the family of the prophets, one of the prophets, and she is taken off as a kidnapped from her family and sold into slavery for Mrs. Naaman. And yet she hears about, she knows about Naaman and about his leprosy, and so she tells Mrs. Naaman about this prophet from Israel who can heal this, her husband. And so Naaman goes to his king, the boss, and shares the situation. The king wants his best general healed and healthy, and so he sends him with a ton of money. The, the, the silver and the gold and the clothes probably comes to a worth in our day of about three to four million dollars. 
and he sends him with three to four million dollars to the king of Israel saying, I would like Naaman healed, please. Now, the king of Israel, how does he feel about this request? Not so happy. He views this as a trap. He thinks that they have come and they have asked him to do the impossible. He knows he cannot heal a man. And he says, this is an impossible task. He actually sees it as essentially Naaman and the king of Assyria, of Syria looking for a pretext at war. As this happens. Warlords do this throughout the ages in which if they want to go and take someone's land, they find a reason to go to war there. They make up a reason. Hitler did this multiple times in his run up to take Europe. He would actually have, have people from Czechoslovakians, dead ones, that he would put in, or he would take dead prisoners that were Czechoslovakians and uh, put them to death and then put them in the, the army, the uniforms of Czechoslovakia, and then parade them and say, look, these men attacked us across the, the line, and so we now have recourse and reason to invade Czechoslovakia. Putin has done this recently, has he not? He had to come up with reasons to have a context and a pretext for war, and that's what the king of Israel thinks that Naaman is doing here. Well, so he's distressed, but Elijah hears about it, and he says, send him my way. I can handle this. It's okay. Poor, powerless king of Israel. And so Naaman heads to Elijah's house with his chariots and his horses and three to four million dollars to give to Elijah as a way of paying for his healing. And yet, does, what is, how does Elijah respond? Elijah doesn't even come out of the house. He sends his servant out, who gives him a very brief instruction, go wash in the Jordan River. And now this offends Naaman, we'll see why in just a minute, but he does it anyways, and lo and behold, he is healed, and he professes faith in God, and, he, and yet he still wants to offer a gift, a present to Elijah, and Elijah says, no, 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 I will not receive any gifts from your hands. And so he heads back towards Syria. Well, Gehazi, Gehazi is a, a stooge. He's a rather unsympathetic character, even though he is the, he's kind of the assistant to the regional manager, right? He's the assistant to the regional prophet, kind of a Dwight Shute sort of character. And he runs after Naaman and, and he lies. And he says, Elijah will, will actually take that, some of that payment after all. But Elijah finds out that Gehazi has done this and he punishes him by inflicting him with the same leprosy that inflicted Naaman. End of story. All right. What the heck are we supposed to get from this? And what were, remember, I've reminded you of this every single week. Remember the context in which this passage and these books are being received. Israel, this is being written some 300 years later after these stories and is being given to Israel in captivity in Babylon. How were the original readers supposed to receive this story and understand it? Well, I think, as, as, as I already pointed out, that verse 1 is critical in setting the tone for the whole text and our whole look at this this morning. And that is this, that God is globally and internationally sovereign no matter where you are. That God is there. That the meat, but then it gets into the meat of the story after verse 1, but that sets the tone. God is the one even over the victories of the Syrian army. He is over all the earth. But then the meat of the story is about how this globally sovereign God, if he is there, then also his grace goes with him. That the same God who rules over the the armies of the earth is also the God who can extend grace to Gentiles and to every part of this globe. And that is where I want to focus this morning. The God who sovereignly reigns over all the earth is the God who gives grace globally and internationally. You see, Yahweh is not God in a box. 
He is not bound by the geographical boundaries of Israel. They cannot contain his grace. And the barriers as well of wicked hearts cannot contain and keep back the power of God and his grace. The grace of God has global reach to gather in the furthest people and the worst of sinners and the bitterest of hearts. So God's grace is global. Now that has implications for the life of Israel, and for the life of Christians now. Let's look at that. Here's what this passage teaches us, how this this global grace teaches us three things this morning. First, God's global grace humbles our pride. It humbles our pride. At first, we're going to look at the the kind of name, and then we're going to look at what the implication of the story is for the people of Israel and in slavery. Everything about the account of Naaman's healing humbles him. Just from the fact that he has leprosy. It's a very visible disease. Here it is, a man of power and success, and now he's been struck down by this debilitating uh, disease that he can't fix and he can't heal himself from. It's a humiliating sort of disease. But then even his interactions with Elijah in particular reveal to Naaman how God works in his grace. That God is not here to be purchased or bribed or impressed by us. Naaman shows up with $4 million and Elijah goes, yeah, we're good. I don't need any of that. Naaman shows up with his chariots and his horses and all of his wealth and his power and his authority. And Elijah's like, yeah, I'm going to stay in my office. I'm not even going to come out and acknowledge you. Elijah doesn't come out. And what is, what is Naaman's response? He's mad. His servants actually have to talk him down off the ledge. He, he, he's commanded to go wash in the Jordan River. And, and he can't give payment for his healing. And he's a offended by this. Why is he so offended? Because God's grace often humbles us. It tells us something bad about us, even as it heals us. God's ways have a way of humbling our pride. And perhaps Elijah, maybe he just lacked people skills here. Maybe that's what it was. Or maybe Elijah just had a bad day, or he was very, very busy. No, that's not it. Elijah is specifically trying to communicate to Naaman, you think you're a big shot. God doesn't care. God extends his grace and his mercy to the impressive and to the unimpressive. And he says, go do something unimpressive. Go wash in the Jordan seven times. Now here we see, this is an unbelievably simple way of healing. Oh, I'm supposed to go take a bath in a little, little creek you guys call the Jordan River? And Naaman is unimpressed. And so he's frustrated by this. It actually says it in verse 11. But Naaman was angry and he went away saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand upon the, the, and call upon the name of the Lord God and wave his hand over the place and cure of this leper. Are not Abanda and Farpar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not have simply just washed in them and been cleaned? So he turned away in a rage. Grace enrages the prideful. Naaman is probably thinking, who does this two-bit dirt prophet think that he is in sending his servants out to me and simply having me go wash in a river? He's all about himself. And he's so ticked off that he's going to walk away from the healing that God offers. But then who intervenes? The lowly again, his servants. And they say this essentially, listen, isn't it, this is actually such a small thing. Isn't this good news that all you have to do is wash in a river? In other words, they're essentially coming to Naaman and they're saying this. If he had said, I want you to go and cut the most beautiful flower from the top of Mount Everest, 
or to, to, to ride down the worst of rapids and clip the toenails off a dragon. Wouldn't you, have been, wouldn't you have been willing to do that to have you healed of your leprosy? They're saying, but he's asked you to do such a small thing. But that's exactly what Naaman is offended by. What, the gospel of grace, all I have to do is accept it by faith? This is a humbling thing. They're confronting Naaman with the fact that he believes he must earn his healing in his favor with God. He wants something hard and expensive so that he might merit healing from God. And God says, no, 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 no. That is not how my grace works. And isn't this true for us as well? That our pride often gets in the way of us receiving the grace that God offers. Its simplicity assaults us. That it's not about you and what you've done. It's about actually realizing that you are a leper and you are diseased and that you are desperate and you can do nothing to buy or pay for your healing. It is only by the grace of Jesus. But the gospel is for men and women who humble themselves before the simplicity of the gospel offer. Go and wash yourself in the blood of Jesus. That's the simple truth of the gospel. Ray Dillard, who's a commentator on the Old Testament, put it this way. The prophet says, wash in the Jordan and be cured of leprosy. What a preposterous idea. I can't think of anything more, I can't think of anything more ridiculous. Well, maybe one thing is more ridiculous. The idea of putting your faith and trust in a man executed on a cross more than 2,000 years ago can give you a renewed life now, forgiveness of sin and resurrection from the dead and eternal life. Now that beats all. That is ridiculous. But if you do not believe in your heart, that you are sinful as the common wretches that crawl upon the earth, then you will never enter the kingdom of God. And it will not because, be because you're uh, not needy enough. It will be because you don't realize how needy you are. And that it is your pride that keeps you from God. God is not compelled to meet our expectations, and he is not impressed by our credentials that we bring to him. Grace humbles us. Now, what is the specific way in which God is humbling and confronting the Israelites in captivity in Babylon who received this story? How are the original readers supposed to apply this? Israel's in captivity. Now, what was their pride in? What were Israelites known to take pride in? What did they see as their merit in way of earning God's favor? It was their ethnicity. It was their Jewishness. We are the people of God. And yet God is saying in First and Second Kings, yes, you're my people, but that doesn't mean I won't let you be the lepers of the world by sending you off into slavery. That doesn't mean I won't humble you and crush you under my discipline. And it doesn't mean they're even more humbled and maybe more offended by the fact that God's grace and mercy, that he has sent them off into discipline, and yet he has healed Naaman, a Gentile, an enemy, a Syrian general. What? The captive Israelites say, wait a second, we're the people of God, and yet you would be merciful to Gentiles who have persecuted us and been our enemies? Your favor goes to them too? It is often offensive, an offensive thing to realize who God lets in the household of God along with you. You ever looked around the room and go, what are they doing here? And what does that say about me if I have to associate with them? Philip Ryken puts it this way. He said, the gospel is for the lostest of the lost. It is for the Jews who have not yet accepted Jesus as the Messiah. 
It is for the Gentiles still waiting to hear the gospel. It is for Hindus and Muslims living in spiritual darkness. It is for the homeless. It is for crack addicts and homosexual prostitutes and abortion doctors. It is for proud pastors and greedy businessmen and lazy teenagers. It is for the whole world, for every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And are you offended by that? Because when we actually look around and see who God lets in, some of us get angry. You know, this is why they got really mad at Jesus in his hometown in Nazareth. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus points back to this very story, story pointing out uh, Israel's lack of submission and their lack of faith and lack of humility. And he says this in chapter, chapter 4 of Luke, verse 27, and there were many lepers, he says, in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah. And none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman in Syria. And they get ready to stone Jesus. What were they so angry about? Wait, you would give favor to Gentiles too? And in fact, you might pass over us to extend your grace and your favor to other nationalities to, around the world? How could you? What is God saying to the Israelites in captivity? You have to realize who you are. Yes, you are my covenant people, but that you're not necessarily anything special. My grace extends to the ends of the earth, and if you want my blessing and my favor, you must bow. The gospel of grace, this is the bad news, will humble us on the way of saving us. It will humble us. It will crush whatever you've put your pride in, whether it be your wealth and your status, your success, your background, your record of merit. Naaman almost stumbled over this reality. Fortunately, he was saved by some humble servants. You know, Paul tells us the same thing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says that the cross is a stumbling block because it, it humbles us. It tells us we really are this bad. But the good news is this to captive Israel and to Christians in this room, which is this. If God would graciously heal the leading general of an enemy army, wouldn't he be willing to graciously heal Israel? And wouldn't he be willing to graciously heal you when you humble yourself and bring you back to him? Well, second, we want to, I want to see from this text that grace, global grace, we look at the fact that God's grace extends to the end of the earth is that it shapes our worship. Now, it's fairly clear one of the ways in which it shapes our worship that we need to have a clear profession of faith. Uh, in verses 15 and verse 17, Naaman, he gets healed, and then he immediately, what does he do? He professes an exclusivity, an expression of exclusivity in his worship. He says in verse 15, And behold, I knew, know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. And then in verse 17, he says, From now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. That is the beginning and central tenet of life of worship to the true God. That I worship God and God alone. Isn't that the first commandment? What does it say? You shall have no other gods. Alone, alone, alone. Name an ass, strangely, for two mulefuls of, of dirt. There's a, now what, he, then he says, so I'm going to use this dirt. And what he's probably going to do, scholars believe, is he's going to go home and he's going to take Israelite dirt and make an altar on that dirt to worship God and God alone. It is a profession of saying, listen, from this point on, I will serve Yahweh and Yahweh alone. But then Naaman makes a request that confuses us and disheartens us about his worship, especially if you're kind of uptight. 
Verse 18, in this matter, though, Lord, may the Lord pardon your servant, he says, when my master goes out into the house of Ramon, which is the Syrian god, to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon. And when I bow myself in the house of Ramon, he's making it very clear what he's going to have to do. Uh, the Lord, may you, Lord, pardon his servants. And he said, and Elisha said to him, go in peace. What is he asking for here? Now, what he's saying is, listen, I'm going to go back to my task as essentially the prime minister of the king of Syria. And as part of that task, I have to take the king of Syria when he goes to worship in the temple of Ramon. And when, he's, and when he holds my arm, I guide him in. And when he goes to bow, I have to essentially bow with him to help him down to the ground. And he's saying, Forgive me for this. Would you pardon me for this act of having to serve and work in, a, in another God's temple? Huh. This is a difficult one. What are we supposed to do with this? Is Naaman committed or not committed to Yahweh? Well, I think he's very clearly committed, right? He's simply, in the two verses right previous to this, he has very clearly said, I will serve the Lord and the Lord only. I will only sacrifice to him. And then we see in Elijah's response, what does he say in verse 19a? Peace, shalom. In other words, what is he saying? What is Elisha responding with? Don't worry about it. It's, okay. it's all right, dude. It's okay. Now, this offends our sensibilities. But here's what I think is being communicated in this little vignette within this story, this little bit of detail. Now, this is a lesson for us about what Israel's worship in captivity should look like. And maybe for us, a people who live in a progressively more pagan land, what might it look like when you're surrounded by paganism to worship God. First, he says, exclusivity, worship God alone. We already saw that. But second, it is telling captive Israel that Yahweh can be worshiped anywhere, outside of Israel. The worship of Israel had always been to them connected to their land and certainly to the temple. And now in captivity, they are far from the land of promise and they are far from the temple. It's actually been destroyed where they, can, they, they believe they could experience God. And the question is, can we worship Yahweh even in captivity? And the answer is yes. Even because even there, God is there. Even there. And because God is internationally present, he may be internationally worshiped. God may be worshipped in every place and every corner of the world. He is worshipped from the greatest cathedrals as well in the darkest dungeons. The worship of God may happen there. It can happen in your house. Yes, even there. That means he can be worshipped at Carrollton City Schools and at Southwire and at University of West Georgia. He can be worshipped by a church surrounded by an encroaching culture that tells them to live and believe and, and worship in a certain way. And yes, this may frustrate some of you. He can be worshipped by two to three Christians huddled in the quiet corner of an Islamic mosque. Because God is everywhere. Third, it tells us in our worship that there are few better evidences of transforming grace and a better form of worship than remaining faithful in that worship in the context of paganism. You see, you, ever, you remember, what are the, some of the stories? Let's think through, what are the stories from Israel's captivity in Babylon? Who are the main characters that were Israelites? We've got Daniel, what was he known for? Rising to the prominence of power and yet remaining faithful to God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're counselors to the king, and yet they are known for remaining faithful to God. Esther, what is she known for? Rising to the place of prominence, and yet remaining faithful to God. Nehemiah, what is he known for? Rising to a place of prominence within a pagan land, 
and yet remaining faithful to God. You see, these are all men and women who remain faithful even when surrounded by evil. And they would not give up the exclusivity of their worship of God, but yet they also would not remove themselves from God's call on their life. They said, I will go into the darkest places and it is there that I will remain faithful to God. In other words, what is he saying to a people in captivity and to a people growing in an increasingly pagan land? Is it good to be in captivity? No. They're not happy about it. It's an aspect of discipline. But what does it tell us to a people who are fearful about encroaching paganism that this may actually be a time in which God may highlight the beauty of your worship? And so is it great and is it good? Do we want it to be pushed back? Do we want to have a, a, a more a lovely culture that, that espouses the beauty of God and his morals and his character? Yes. But sometimes when God puts us in a gross place, his beauty and his glory stand out all the more. And for the believers who are willing to do that, it becomes a glorious act of worship. Lastly, global grace means this. It frames our worship. The story of Naaman is bookended not by this focus on the just Gentile, but bookended by a focus on two servants who were Israelites. One is a good example. The other is bad. Let's look at the bad example first. Gehazi. Even his name sounds bad. What a stooge. Ugh. So what do we see here at the end? Naaman gets healed, and, Naaman, and, and, and he comes back to Elijah, and he praises God, and he says, listen, I still want to give you a gift. And Elijah says, no. Now, what would be wrong with Elijah taking a payment here? Aspect to, to take three to four million dollars. But Elijah, why don't you think he takes the, takes the gift? Because he wants to make sure that Naaman understands that you're healed not by anything that you have given me or given to God. You're healed by God's grace and God's grace alone. And it is in this context that the greatness of Gehazi's sin becomes real and clear. Certainly Gehazi lies. That's not good. Then Gehazi takes the Lord's name in vain as he lies when he goes and chases after Naaman and says, surely by the name of the Lord. That's not good either. But Gehazi's most lurid offense was distorting the truth about the grace of Yahweh. That Gehazi is marring the canvas of healing grace. It is running after Naaman and saying, actually, God will take that, that gift. You can pay for this. Gehazi is making Yahweh look like all the other taker gods from all the other cultures. And this is why Gehazi's discipline is so severe. That grace, <laughs> that grace is God's people, that when we are, are shaped, even in a, a pagan land, that what we are to make beautiful and put bright, shining spotlights on is God is good. And his grace is abundant. And one of the greatest offenses that we can make and the distractions from the mission of God that he has given us in this world is to mar his account and his story and his offer of free grace to the world. Paul gets really riled up about this. Remember in the New Testament? God is zealous about protecting his grace. For example, Paul, his most severe statement in all of the New Testament is in Galatians because he's got these people who are showing up to the Galatian church and he's saying, listen, they're like, it's nice that you have Jesus, but you have to add these things to Jesus. And he says, woe now. And he says this in verse eight and nine. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That is Gehazi. 
he is cursed because he conceals the grace of God. Grace is free, and we must never, ever distort it. That's the bad example. What's the good example? The good example is the little girl at the beginning of the story. You can read over her so quickly, but she's actually the hero. Here's the sign of someone who gets the gospel of grace and understands God's vision that he wants his grace to go to the ends of the earth, to go go internationally, and it's this, that they serve and they love their enemies. Read real quick to understand her story. This little girl serves Naaman's wife, and she tells of the man who can heal Naaman. Now remember this girl, where she's from. She's from a remnant home, probably. That means, remember last week we talked about the sons of the prophets. This is a family that has served God faithfully, and are in, even in a, a, a degenerate Israelite society. And yet this family is one of those that God allows for her to be kidnapped and taken off to, into a foreign land. And think about how beautiful and simple her testimony is, but think about also the context of it. The tragedy of her life that she has been removed from her father and mother. She's been ripped from her family and from all that she has known and loved. Syrian raiding parties kidnapping her and selling her as a slave. And God knows what has happened to her for the rest of her life. Can you imagine the trauma? And this is big T trauma. The trauma of this little girl. To live in the household of the greatest embodiment of your enemies. And yet, what is her testimony? What does she want? That she longs for Naaman to be healed. What would it require of the belief system of this young woman to offer help to a man who is her enemy? This little one had to believe that God's grace could extend so globally that it goes to our enemies too. That she looked upon one who was her enemy with compassion and mercy. And isn't this, doesn't this remind us of someone else? Maybe someone who sat in heaven and said, I will leave my father and I'll enter in Jerusalem. And he'll stand over Jerusalem and he'll look at the very people in the week in which Jesus does, in which he's about to be murdered on a cross. And he stands over Jerusalem. And what does it say about his heart? It says he weeps for he had compassion upon them. This is the heart of your God. And this is what Jesus has done for us. That when you were lost, and you were running from him, that he stood over you and he said, I will give my life for you. And the degree that you can do that, that you realize that he has done that, that his grace extends to sinners like you, then you will extend God's grace to sinners around us. What is it that the Israelites in captivity are supposed to learn in this? One final point, and that is that they are to be a blessing to the nations. You see, this was their call and their mission from the very beginning. If they would embrace the grace of God, they would find there a desire to bless even those who hold them captive. You know Jeremiah, when he shows up and he's calling Israel, he says this in chapter 29, verse 7, about what they're supposed to do even while they're in captivity. He says this, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your own. And what God is doing in this story is he's calling Israel to say this, return to your mission, which is to be what? A blessing to the nations. 
that Israel was always to be a nation in which God's grace was poured out upon so that they may extend God's grace to all the pagan nations around them and call them in and call them to come and worship God rightly. For that's what it says in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. When the Israelite nation begins with Father Abraham, it says this, and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. Why? So that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who curse you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What is our mission? What is our mission? To participate in the global grace mission of God. To say, that is what I want to be a part of. That God has called me out. Remember where Abraham was? Out of Ur of the Chaldees, out of paganism. That he has come and extended his compassion for me and called me out by the grace of Jesus Christ to be his and therefore, no matter where he takes me, into captivity, no matter how bad the things around me get, maybe the world of paganism grows closer and closer and closer, that I will make it my mission to say I will bless those around me by extending to them the grace of Jesus Christ, just as it was extended to me. Let's pray to that end this morning as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God of compassion. And Lord, we become seasoned, seasoned Christians, and then we forget it. Or we get really territorial about your compassion. We like it for us, but we don't like it for others. Lord, I think about some of the images I've seen on the news the last couple of weeks. There's women and men out protesting the ending of Roe versus Wade, and they have just grotesque garments on them. And yet, when you see them, Lord, you grieve. Would we grieve? Yes, even as we go and call them to an exclusive God. And Lord, when we see pictures of white supremacists who we would be tempted to hate, that we would see that God looks upon them with compassion and grace. And those are poles, Lord. Those are like these uh, character figures that we put in the news. But Lord, actually, it's far more difficult to love the grouchy uncle and to have compassion on him at Sunday dinner and the complaining spouse and the mean-spirited neighbor. And so, gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be a people who live by compassion, that we would eat it every morning and realize that you have given it to us, and that that would humble us so that we might extend it to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.